And there are two Bible readings today, as Carl said. Um, the first is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you can follow along on the screen behind me, starting at verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me, also, as to one abnormally born. The second reading is from Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The wrong way. Um... Is the God of Christmas still good for you, for, for your family? Good enough to um, step up and serve more, uh, sacrificially give more, pray more, uh, maybe even have a go talking more to, to people that God's put in your life about Jesus in the coming weeks, in the lead up to Christmas. Is the God of Christmas still good for you? Is the God of Christmas good enough for you to even consider doing the unimaginable, picking up your roots and moving to a less reached, less resourced part of this city or the country to take the good news of Jesus there. One of my slow burn God conversations is with my dental hygienist, Emily, not her real name. I see her every six months. Uh, most recent was last Friday. Uh, Emily's mum used to go to church. Her dad uh, was an atheist. Emily is a single mum now with two kids, separated for three years. Her divorce just came through in the last couple of months. I asked Emily how she was feeling, how things were going. I think a little bit unexpectedly, Emily got a bit emotional behind the mask as she shared. She teared up. <laughs> she laughed off the tears saying, normally it's the oldies you know, who get emotional uh, with her questions. You see, every day is a challenge for her at the moment, but it is better this way. It's safer this way, going it alone. But it's not fair. I mean, if there's a God, why is life so sucky? And, well, what about my aunt? My aunt, well, she is so religious, you know, goes to church all the time. And, but her life is like, takes really, really hard. Got lots of hard and horrible things going on in her life. I mean, where's God there? Now, we've been bantering together about God twice a year uh, for over five years now. And all the while, this is, so you've got to imagine this, you know, there I am, you know, 
ah, hands right out, ah, have a spit. So, you know, you ask the next question. I mean, it's a bit of a Monty Python skit, but um, next time you're at the dentist, you've got to have a go. Like this, and let me know how it goes, but, um, but I love a good challenge. And everyone needs Jesus, don't they? Oh, good, yeah, don't they? Yeah? All right, so we're on the same page here. But So there's the question, is the God of Christmas good for our cities and country towns? And it's the question that um, Australian newspaper journalist and author Greg Sheridan asks in his book, God is Good for You. There should be a PowerPoint here with um, a quote from his book. Greg Sheridan asks, what will it mean for us when God is dead? The loss of Christianity will change us in ways we cannot possibly imagine. If God is gone, the basis of our ethics is gone, we're living off the scent of an empty vase. Observe Sheridan, without a relationship with God, human beings are deprived of the one fact across history which has mandated their universal or irreducible value. Why you believe what you believe about life, death, God, it's an important question that impacts our lives, our relationships and eternity, isn't it? You see, if we're nothing more than worm food, then you and I and I mean, our children are just meaningless carbon dust on the floor of eternity. But if there is a God behind it all, it suggests that you and I are intended, that we're a part of a greater purpose. And that brings us to the first point in your outline there and back to those words we heard read out from Luke chapter 1. Let me just remind you of them. That Christmas and Christianity is so much more than just a story. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, writes Luke, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now what's Luke saying? Well first, there are other accounts based on eyewitness testimony about Jesus. Luke, who was a medical doctor, he wasn't an eyewitness. Luke is mentioned three times by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in three of his letters. So we know Luke was a travel companion and disciple of the Apostle Paul um, in the second half of Acts. So Luke would have had access to those first witnesses in his travels, it seems. He would have met possibly a good number of the apostles, would have met Jesus' mother Mary, maybe even met the shepherds. Which is why Luke can say he's carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Luke also reveals that he's writing for a guy called Theophilus and perhaps like some of us here, Theophilus, which means lover of God, he's, he's heard some things about Jesus. He could even be a believer. But perhaps his faith is frayed in the business and material seductions of life. Or maybe it's just living in the Roman Empire. You know, it's become increasingly hostile to the gospel of Jesus, increasingly hostile to Jesus' followers. And of course, on the back of a same-sex marriage um, debate this country's had, for the first time ever, segments of society say that Christians and Christianity are bad for society, should be cancelled. Now, perhaps you can identify with Theophilus' uncertainties and doubts. 
Perhaps you sit here this morning not as joyful as you once were, you know, in Jesus because you're not as certain as you once were about Jesus. Luke's Gospel account, it's written for us. It's written um, claiming that here we can definitively, um, tangibly, verifiably look at the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. Christianity claims something incredibly unique and actually dangerous among world religions and philosophies of the day. Buddhism depends on Siddhartha Gautama's insights while meditating under a Bodhi tree. Hinduism looks to the Vedas, supposedly handed down to the first man at the dawn of time. Islam is founded on the belief that the angel Gabriel met repeatedly with the prophet Muhammad and privately dictated the word of God to him in a cave. Now what these three world religions all have in common is that we cannot objectively examine or test the historical truth of their claims. We've got to take their claims subjectively on face value. See, Christianity really is unique because it's the only uh, philosophy or faith that is grounded in verifiable historical evidence that can be examined and evaluated in the public marketplace of history and ideas. And of course, plenty do. It probably explains why Christianity is the most attacked religion in the world because you can actually attack it. This idea, it's everywhere in the New Testament. Um, the Apostle Paul, that first reading we heard from uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians, I'll just remind you again what he wrote. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then he appeared to the twelve and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and he appeared to all the apostles and last of all he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Two little phrases there. The first one, according to the scriptures, is Paul saying, according to the hundreds of promises that God has made over thousands of years in the Old Testament part of the Bible. Jesus rocking up wasn't a surprise, it wasn't plan B, it's been planned in eternity by God and revealed there. All the clues are there. This is what Luke means in chapter 1 verse 1 when he says that he's carefully investigated and put together an orderly account of things fulfilled or accomplished among us by Jesus. That little word, fulfilled or accomplished, it's there at the end of Luke's Gospel. It's the word Jesus uses, the risen Jesus uses, as he's standing in front of his disciples, saying that these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled or accomplished. See, Jesus is God fulfilling hundreds of prophecies made over thousands of years in time and place. This is not fairies and fairy tales down the end of the garden. But again, did you hear that eyewitness sort of testimony language, you know, that you hear in a court of law? Um, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. This is the language of eyewitness testimony. 
He appeared not to one bloke in a cave or under a tree, but the bodily risen Jesus appeared to hundreds of people over many days, many who were alive when Paul was writing, and so could have easily refuted the claims that those first followers were making. Christian belief is not believing contrary to evidence, but belief because of the evidence in history. It really matters we, we think about this stuff because if, if you're seriously going to take a stand ethically in life, if you're going to launch into a relationship, into a conversation and, and put yourself out there for Jesus and have a go, being certain that we're launching from firm ground that, yeah, th- this is real. Jesus is real. This really happened. I really believe this. It's why John Dixon has written his great little book, which I forgot to bring up, sorry, um, Is Jesus History? Beautiful, going to hold it up. Excellent. And what a beautiful exhibit. No, no, no sorry, Chris. You could, much, much more interesting if you hold it up. Is Jesus History? Um, John Dixon actually has a PhD just in history as well as theology. Uh, but this is his big thing. And, and he writes this. He said, Christianity gambles its plausibility on supposedly historical events. The events of Jesus took place in a cultural and political melting pot, Roman Galilee and Judea, for which we have thousands of archaeological remains and hundreds of thousands of words of ancient subscriptions and written records. And the good thing why he writes the book, it's very gently, he writes it so it's really accessible uh, for our not yet believing friends and family and stuff, a good Christmas giveaway. Well, it brings us to an important question and point two. How do historians know Jesus really existed? You see, apart from the Bible, is there evidence really? What is it? And I was surprised to discover how much evidence there was outside the Bible for Jesus when I first started looking at Jesus as a 25-year-old back in 1992. So, for example, a first-century Jewish historian called Josephus, he was no friend of Christianity. This is what he records. Jesus, a wise man, if it is appropriate to call him a man, for he did marvellous deeds. He was Messiah. And when Pilate had condemned him to be crucified, those who loved him did not abandon him, for he appeared alive again to them on the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold. Then there's Roman historians like Cornelius Tacitus. He wrote his Annals of Imperial Rome in AD 115. Christians derived their name from a man called Christ, who during the reign of Emperor Tiberius had been executed by sentence for the procurator, Pontius Pilate. The deadly superstition, thus checked for the moment, broke out afresh not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular. Now, you might have just picked up here that Tacitus wasn't particularly a fan of Jesus or Christianity as well. (laughs) Yet, here he is, a Roman historian, confirming when and by whom and where Jesus was executed. You see? And then there's the historical details that are there in our Bibles. For example, included by Luke in his Gospel, that just marries up beautifully with all this extra-biblical data. And so, for example... Just read just as two sentences, a couple of chapters on, from Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, 
During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert. You see, he's, he's putting all these events squarely in history. And historians know a heap of stuff about these guys. Tiberius Caesar, the 15th year of his reign, you know, AD 14 to 36. Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea in AD 26 to 36. Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis. They were the two sons of Herod the Great. Herod ruled Judea, 4 BC to 39 AD. Philip ruled the northeast. We don't know much about Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene. We're told it was all happened during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Annas had five sons. They ruled. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. And so this whole time was called the, the priesthood of Annas. It's why secular historians and academics like E.P. Sanders of Duke University, he writes, there are no substantial doubts about the general course of Jesus' life, when and where he lived, approximately when and where he died, and the sort of things he did during his public ministry. Now, this is all, seems like a lot of information, but the point is, you know, when people just write or write off Jesus, oh, his make-believe didn't really exist, how can you believe that stuff? You know, kids at school, not if, but when, especially if you're in a public school like my kids were, once a week, one of their teachers would, would have a go at Christianity publicly from the front, trying to write it off. But I just want us to know that we stand on solid ground. Christians are the ones with all the evidence in history behind us. And that brings us to point three. This is why Luke's gospel is verifiable, historical, great news, momentous news. Again, from Luke chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? So that you may know the certainty, the certainty of the things you have been taught. What's Luke's cure for skeptics and doubters and atheists? It's a careful investigation. Just consider the evidence. Look at the evidence. The joy of certainty that Luke is holding out to anyone here this morning and to people that God's put in our lives, it's well captured by Tony Morfitt. Tony Morfitt spent his time writing scripts for Australian TVs and shows and documentary. He was once quite a vocal atheist. He was challenged to pick up and read a gospel biography about Jesus Christ because he'd actually never done that as an adult. And this is what he said. I'd spent all my working life writing scripts which were either documentary or fiction. When I came to the Gospels, I recognised that they were not fiction, they were documentary. This led Tony Morford to keep looking at the evidence for Jesus. Several months later, he was so convinced by the evidence, he was compelled to put his faith in Jesus Christ as his own personal Lord and Saviour. This atheist became a Christian follower of Jesus. And so, wherever you're at this morning, been a follower for a long time, or maybe you're here, curious, you're trying to work things out, or maybe you've, you've lost your way a bit. If you're looking for more joy with certainty this Christmas, I want to suggest there really is more than meets the eye when you look at Jesus. 
And there's no time like the now to explore further. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to Christians in Rome that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. That is everything that was written in the Bible, God made sure the Bible was written down for us, for Christians. So that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, that we might have hope. That any human being might have hope. And surely in times like we're currently living in, people need hope. Now maybe you believe death is the end. Maybe you believe that everything, you know, it, it, like it doesn't really matter as long as I'm, you know, a nice person trying to be good, well, at least according to your standards. You know, you just think everything's going to be okay in the end. But friends, the last time I checked, death remains as real as ever. The last time I checked, Jesus clearly taught repeatedly that having come once, he is coming again to judge the living and the dead, to save those who believe in him and waiting for him, but to judge those who are not. One of my relatives has just been unexpectedly diagnosed with cancer a couple of weeks ago. She, she thought the finish line, the end of her life, was way, way in the future, somewhere over the horizon. Now suddenly, as she's lying there in the hospital bed, dreams and plans on hold, crumbling away, it, 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 it's possibly right there. Haley was a student at Brighton Secondary School where my kids went. They knew her. Every morning she'd take the dog for a walk. She was standing on the corner, waiting to cross the road with the lights. A truck turned the corner, had a trailer, turned a bit sharp. The trailer caught her in the head and killed her instantly. Never made it home. What does God say? Everything that was written in the past was written to teach you, me, us, so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The Bible is a book, it drips with real resurrection from the dead hope. Real flesh and blood, Jesus, hope. Historically grounded, evidentially based hope. And so for many scientists... God's fingerprints are everywhere in the cosmos. Take, for example, Stuart Burgess, professor of engineering design at the University of Bristol. He writes that there are clues everywhere around us that support a powerful argument in favour of God's existence. That's consistent with the God we meet in the Bible. And so if faith in Jesus is not a leap in the dark, is it a good time to consider the evidence in the man? In his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins uses a dictionary definition of delusion as his definition for faith. It's very sneaky. He, he gets the definition for delusion exactly right. A persistent false belief held in the face of strong contradictory evidence. But of course, this isn't the definition of faith. It reflects a false understanding that faith is a kind of willing that we do when we want something to be true, even when the evidence suggests that it's not. Christian faith is not a leap in the dark, but a leap forward into life now and resurrection life in eternity. A fairer definition of biblical faith is reliable or reasonable trust, 
based on the evidence. Think about how you do relationships, why you choose to trust someone and not trust someone else and choose to trust getting in this car or not, whatever it is. It's based on evidence. It's based on testimony. It's based on history. And this fits with the Oxford English Dictionary definition of faith. And, and this has been the definition of faith since the 11th century until today. Firm trust or belief in or reliance upon something, a statement. Belief based on evidence, testimony or authority. It's why John Lennox, professor in mathematics at Oxford University, writes, faith is not a leap in the dark. It's the exact opposite. It's a commitment based on evidence. It's irrational to reduce all faith to blind faith and then subject it to ridicule. It provides a very anti-intellectual and convenient way of avoiding intelligent discussion. You know, it's interesting. Since writing The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins has come out and said publicly, oh, look, if one of these world religions has to be true, it's probably best that it's Christianity. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? Where do we leave things with my dental hygienist? I only get to see her twice a year. I've tried to increase it to three monthly, but then she said, oh, but your health fund won't pay for that. You see, Emily's trying to get me to floss. The evidence, it's out there, it's good for my teeth. I just really don't like flossing. I've suggested to Emily that the evidence is out there for Jesus. Jesus is good for life. That in fact, reading a gospel or visiting her local church with her two kids is a place and a community where she would find healing and hope there for her and her family. Oh, you're not going to convert me, she said last Friday. (laughs) I smiled up at her. (laughs) You know, I said, oh, actually, you're right, Emily. God's job is to convert you, not mine. I'm more like a dental hygienist of the soul, just like you're poking and prodding around in my mouth, you know. That's my role, to prod and poke around gently and lovingly in your life. God's the cosmic dentist. God's the fixer. He's the soul surgeon. Now, wherever you're at this morning, beginning to explore the truth of Jesus, just become a follower of Jesus for a while or, or whatever, the invitation is to take up a Gospel of Luke and take a couple of hours to read it from cover to cover. Consider afresh what's there for you and for your relationships and your friends and your family. And as I've done, you might like to pick up a copy of the John Dixon book. Uh, I think there's about six left at Kurong, last time I checked, but anyway. Um, just like, you know, it's good to do a first aid refresher course every couple of years. Um, consider this a Jesus refresher course to get you all ready and sharp um, for the many, many opportunities and conversations that are going to come our way in the next three weeks with Christmas, whether it's a Christmas dinner or whether it's a visit to the dentist. We can be prepared and ready and have good good reason to be. Because as I heard you guys tell me at the beginning, everyone needs Jesus, right? Sorry, everyone everyone needs Jesus, yeah? All right, okay. Let me pray. Dear loving Heavenly Father, 
We want to thank you for Luke's historical account of your son, Jesus Christ. Thanks that these events concerning Jesus are historical and verifiable. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, into the world for his death on his cross and our place for the forgiveness of our sin. And thank you so much for his bodily resurrection from the dead. Your proof that the wage of our sin really is paid for in full by his death and the power of evil really is defeated. Thank you that your invitation is to come just as we are to your son, whatever we've done or not. You will accept us. Thank you that for anyone who turns to Jesus and puts their trust in Jesus, you really do promise forgiveness of all their sin forever. Thank you that we can live each day with the joy of certainty that we really are saved and safe and secure simply by faith in Jesus. And finally, please will you help each of us to have the courage to have a go this Christmas to talk to those people you've put in our life, whether they be a friend or a stranger or family, that we too might know the joy of sharing this Jesus with them as well. And we pray that for their salvation and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.